Okay, so have you ever noticed that when you are really, really looking forward to something, like something big, and you are really looking forward, and it's, it's out in the future, and you're moving toward it, that you get so excited as the day draw near, draws near, and it begins to take up more and more of your focus and attention. You get so excited looking forward to what's coming, but then once it happens, and then it's over, it's kind of a downer, right? Like, I always remember that as a kid, as it got to be Halloween week, you know, and it comes time to pick out your costume, and it comes time to get ready and all that kind of stuff. And all I'm thinking is candy, 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 candy. No matter what's going on, I'm thinking about all this bag of candy I'm about to get. And you go out and you just get to as many houses as you can. You get that bag as full as you can. You try to protect it from your older siblings to make sure they don't get it from you. And then you wake up the next morning and it's November. And it's like, okay, kind of a downer. I remember a few years ago, my wife and I were getting ready to celebrate our 25th anniversary. And, uh, and it, was, it was around the same time that uh, our daughter was getting married. And so we had this wedding that was so exciting that we were looking forward to. And, you know, if you've ever planned a wedding, it's just all-encompassing. It takes up all your time and it takes up all your energy and your emotions and your money. It takes up all that stuff. And... And you're just focused on it, focused on it, and then the, and the wedding comes, and the wedding goes, and the wedding was great, and we had a great time. And then right behind it was coming our anniversary, and when our anniversary came, it's the 25th, it's a big deal, and we were going to go on a cruise. Now, how many of you have ever been on a cruise, right? We had never been before. We had heard about it, and frankly, neither one of us was quite sure how much we were going to like it. We didn't know if we were going to like it. I know my poor wife was thinking, I'm going to be with just him for a week. That, how good is that going to be, right? And, and I'm thinking, you know, we're cooped up on this boat out in the middle of the ocean. There's like thousands of strangers on the boat with you. And I, I'm just like, I, I, you know, I kind of want to, I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to it. I want to do this, but I'm just not so sure. Then the day finally comes and we get on the boat. And the first thing I find out the food is free. <laughs> Have you seen the buffet at these places? Oh, dear God in heaven, let me live on a cruise ship the rest of my days. Oh, so exciting, you know? And it's just like you just finish a meal and it's like, you know, 9.30 and you're like waddling back to your room going, oh my gosh, what do you want to do with the rest of the night? And I'm like, you know, there's a midnight buffet. <laughs> it's incredible. We had the time of our lives on this cruise. It was so much fun. And we just had a blast. We did all these cool things that we don't usually do. And we just spent time together and enjoyed one another, got to know new people and all that kind of... It was just an absolute blast. And then we pull into the port and we get off the ship and we get home and sit down And it's just back to the same old, same old. It's like the whole thing was like this, this little fantasy thing, and you live that, and now you got to go back to real life, and it's just kind of a downer. Some people have that experience with their weddings. You know, when, when, I, 
when I counsel couples who are, they come to me and they say, hey, we want you to perform our wedding ceremony. I always say, I'll be happy to do that, but we're going to have to go through extensive premarital counseling before we do that. I will never marry any couple that we don't do premarital counseling with extensively because I want to make sure that they're getting ready. And what I've discovered is that it is amazing how much time and energy and focus and money is spent on preparing for a wedding compared to how much is spent on preparing for a marriage. It, you know, it's as if the day when the bride is all dressed up and you do the I do's and you have the reception, it's as if that's the point. That's not the point. That's just the beginning of a whole marriage. It's the beginning of a whole family. It's the beginning of a whole step in your history together. And it's amazing how much we get all you know, excited about the event, and then so often happens with couples, they go off on their honeymoon, they have a great time, and they get back, and now it's time to get back to work and get back to all the stuff that they normally have to do, learn to live with one another, learn to live with somebody who squeezes the toothpaste right from the middle of the tube. I mean, who does this, right? And you have to start to make these adjustments and all this kind of stuff, and then, and, uh, and it always happens after some period of time, there's a little spat, and somebody says, well, it looks like the honeymoon's over. And you're right back to this place where you're like, well, I was so excited about this, but now what do we do? How are we going to make this great? Is this going to be great? Listen, there was no greater event in human history than the weekend when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And we have been spending the last month and a half at Grace Fellowship getting geared up for this. We've been talking about the whole week in advance that Jesus rode into town on the donkey and the time that he cleansed the temple and all of his confrontations with the leaders. We, we've, we've watched as he has the Last Supper with his disciples and then he's arrested in the garden. We've seen him crucified and nailed to the cross and we mourned on that night on Friday last week when we all gathered together and thought about the death that he died and the price that he paid for us. And then we came last Sunday on Easter Sunday and we did the he is risen, he is risen indeed and we're all excited and we're all pumped because there's nothing more important than the fact that Jesus Christ defeated sin and death on our behalf that weekend, right? That's the whole deal. And here we are the Sunday after Easter. And what I don't want is I don't want us to feel like we're getting off the cruise ship. I don't want us to feel like we're just sort of settling back in now and we had our time of excitement, but now it's time to get back to reality and reality is just so-so and really is it that big of a deal. I hope that if you were here on Easter weekend, if you came on Good Friday and you got a glimpse of the cross and how horrible it was that he had to pay that price for us, and if you came on Easter Sunday and you got a glimpse of the excitement of the open, empty tomb and what it meant that he is risen, I hope you got a good glimpse of all of that. But now it's the week after Easter. All that stuff's behind us. The big event has already taken place. And I want you to imagine, if you will, what it was like for the disciples that week after Jesus rose. I mean, for many of them, it was still a rumor. For hours, the main group of disciples never got to see Jesus. And then for days, many of his followers just heard this rumor that he was risen. 
there, there was an empty tomb, but what did that prove? There was already a, a story going around about how the disciples came and stole the body, and maybe he didn't raise it all. And, and so there was, it was a confusing time. There was those two men that, that ran into Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus revealed himself to them, and they were so blown away. And they came back and began spreading this story. Mary Magdalene said she had seen him with her own eyes and touched him with her own hands. Peter and John had a story to tell about how an angel spoke to them and said that he is risen and they should go to Galilee and wait for him. But now, that's over. The Passover week is behind them. It's a week after the resurrection. And the question has to be, now what? What happens next? Jesus had appeared to a few people, but what happens next? And the disciples have no idea what to do now. In fact, the Scripture tells us they are scared, and they should be scared because they saw what was done to Jesus, and Jesus Himself said to them, if they do these things to me, they will do the same to you, and even worse, if you are a follower of mine. And so they were locked behind locked doors, and they were hiding out, and they had to be wondering, what is this exactly? Is this the end of an era? Is this the beginning of a new ministry? What is this that we're dealing with here? Was it time to go back to their old lives, pick up where they left off? Well, let's pick up the story in the book of John. Turn, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 20. Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, third book of the New Testament. We're going to go to John chapter 20, and we're going to see what happened after the resurrection. We're actually going to begin really just half a day after the resurrection took place. So now it's Sunday evening. And the disciples are together, and we're going to pick it up in John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now, let's stop there for a second. There's a bunch I don't know about here. I can't exactly explain this. Somehow, Jesus, when he rose from the grave. He didn't, it was not just a spirit. He was not just an apparition. His actual physical body that had been dead became alive, right? And we know that Mary Magdalene put her arms around him and clung to him, touched his actual body. And yet we know that, for instance, uh, when he was on the road to Emmaus, he prevented people from recognizing who he was. And we also know that when he was with the guys on the road to Emmaus and he stopped at their house and was having dinner, once he revealed them to himself to them, what did he do? Vanished. He vanished. It doesn't say he got up, excused himself, folded his napkin, thanked them for dinner, and walked out. It says he vanished. And they looked at each other and said, who is this we have been having dinner with, Right? So somehow Jesus in his glorified body, he is not bound by the same kinds of laws of nature that a regular body is bound by, and they are in a locked up room. And it says here that the doors were shut, and literally the word for shut there means locked, for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. It doesn't say that Jesus knocked on the door and they did the who is it and do you know the password thing. And it doesn't say that Jesus came in through the window and suddenly dropped in. It just says Jesus was in their midst. And I don't know how it happened. I don't know if he travels through walls, if he just 
you know, beams himself into places, but there he was. And he says, peace be with you. Verse 20, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now, why did he show them his hands? Because he had holes in his wrists, right? And he was showing them that these were the same hands that were crucified. Why did he show them his side? Because they shoved the spear up through his ribs and into his heart and lungs, and that was the method by which they proved that he was actually dead before they put him in the grave. And so he shows them his hands and his sides. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... Their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So there are twelve main disciples in addition to the other followers of Jesus, right? And Judas is not with them. Why is Judas not with them? Because he killed himself. It's such an interesting thing for me when I stop and think about this sometimes. Judas betrays Jesus and he's suddenly, you know, broken over his sin and remorseful about what he has done. And he goes off and kills himself after Jesus is crucified. And I just always think, what, what if he had just like gone home and cried into his pillow for a couple days and he had been around for the resurrection? You know, because Judas betrayed Jesus. You know who else betrayed Jesus? Every one of the other disciples, they all said, we will never leave, and they all ran like scared rabbits. Peter denied him three times, and all of them were restored to Jesus after the resurrection, and it just makes me wonder, it breaks my heart, because so often people, they just get depressed and caught up in how they've messed up, and then instead of turning to Jesus for help, they just sort of implode, and they miss the opportunity for forgiveness, and what a terrible tragedy that is. Verse 21, um, uh, verse 24, I should say, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them. So Judas is not with them, and Thomas is not with them. We know why Judas is not with them. We have no idea why Thomas is not with them. He just isn't. I don't know if he was uh, visiting relatives that day. I don't know if he was home with a cold. Whatever reason, Thomas is not with them. Verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut or locked, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. So it's a, it's a week later and the same thing is happening again. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here, uh, your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. The story of doubting Thomas. We never talk about Thomas. Never. We never preach sermons on Thomas except that he was doubting. So he is known to us forever as doubting Thomas. 
Wouldn't you love to forever be known by your worst moments? Isn't that wonderful? Doubting Thomas. He goes down in history as an example for us to avoid doing what he did. Doubting Thomas. And you know what? Have you ever in your life heard a sermon preached on how we should all be like doubting Thomas? No. He goes down in history as the person we shouldn't be like. I want you to know that if you have never before heard a sermon preached on how we should all be like doubting Thomas, you have come to the right place. You're going to hear one today. Because I am utterly convinced that we are given the example of Thomas, not so we can look down on him and say, what a fool he was, what a loser he was, why didn't he trust the Lord more? But we are given an example by Thomas that we are actually supposed to follow. You're like, are you kidding me? You think we're supposed to doubt Jesus? I'll tell you what, you may doubt my ability to preach this sermon, but bear with me. So... um. I say Thomas doesn't deserve the bad rap he got. Remember, he was not there a week before, right? When Jesus appeared. And let's go back and look at verse 20 again. So this is when Judas, I mean, when Thomas is not there, verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Do you, do you remember the time when they were out on the boat and the storm was raging and they looked off and they saw Jesus walking to them on water? What did they think? Did they think, oh, hooray, Jesus is coming walking on water? No. They said, you know what? Human beings cannot walk on water. It must be a ghost. That was their first thought. Now, I, they're probably not, not, you know, superstitious guys. They're probably not the kind of guys who are looking for ghosts. And yet, when there is a, a person walking on water, your mind says, people can't walk on water, it must be a ghost. And so they freaked out thinking it was a ghost, right? And now here they are in this room, and this dead guy appears before them. They know he died. They saw him die. They saw the spear go up into his heart. They saw the blood and water flow out. They saw him get wrapped up and put in a tomb. They saw the stone rolled away. And now there were these rumors. But who can believe a rumor like this? Because here's what we all know. Dead people don't just raise themselves. Just, just picture this. I don't mean to be morbid, but just picture this for a second. Think about the last funeral you went to. And you went to the graveside, and there was the headstone and the burial, and you saw the casket lowered down into the grave and the, and the dirt thrown on top of it. And a few weeks go by, and a friend calls you up and says, hey, remember Bob? We went to his funeral. Yeah. I just saw him at Walmart. <laughs> now, what are you thinking? You're thinking, oh, it must have been somebody who looked like Bob. He says, no, no, no. I talked to him. I shook his hand. I saw him myself. It was really Bob. You, the same Bob that, that we buried in the ground? Yes, same guy. He rose again. He's alive. Now, if you got that message, you would say, well, my friend, you need to go to the cuckoo farm. <laughs> or you would say, it must be some mistake. Maybe, maybe, maybe you imagined it. Maybe it was a dream. You know how sometimes we have really vivid dreams? Maybe it was like that. No, 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 I saw him. You wouldn't believe until you saw him yourself. 
you touched them yourself and you found out it was real. And even then, you might not believe. So I say Thomas doesn't deserve the rap that he got. All of the disciples needed to see the holes in his hands and the hole in his side. And then it says in verse 20, they believed. So all that Thomas is asking for is the same reasonable faith that his friends have come to. He's saying, I'm not just going to believe this by hearsay. I'm not just going to believe this because somehow someone told me about that. Thomas is just asking for a basis for his faith. And shouldn't we be the same way? I mean, are we supposed to have this empty faith where we just believe something because someone told us? Especially someone, something as crazy as God himself in the womb of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, raised up sinlessly, dying on the cross willingly, and raising on the third day to purchase our pardon? We're supposed to just believe that because someone said it? I think it would be foolish of Thomas that just because someone he knew said they saw the risen Savior, and he should believe in the risen Savior. See, we need a personal testimony. It's not enough to have read about Jesus in a book. It is not enough to believe the doctrines that the church teaches. It is not enough to go, well, I know there was a historical figure named Jesus who lived in the Middle East at that time, and he was a well-known rabbi. That's not enough. Because here's the deal, guys, and I'm just going to be really frank and really blunt about this. Here's the deal. Nobody ever got into heaven on somebody else's faith. We, we need to hear that. We need to understand that. You, you're not going to, to come and stand before Jesus one day, and when he says, on what basis should you be received into eternal life? And you say, oh, Jesus, my mother was a very godly woman. But she loved you. She told us about you. And I believe the stuff that she told us. In fact, we used to go to Sunday school. We went until she died. We went to Sunday school. She was so godly. I know she's already in there. She's probably got the biggest mansion on the street. My mom was such a godly person because Jesus is going to look at us and he's going to say, I didn't ask you that. What about you? What is your experience with me? What have you done with Jesus? See, Has Jesus shown himself to you in real life? Or are you just believing what somebody else tells you about Jesus? Do you have any actual experience with the risen king, some testimony of your own about what God does in your life? Because Revelations 12, 11 tells us that the enemy of our souls is defeated by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Like, think about that for a second. We get it. If you've been around church for any length of time, you know the blood of the Lamb is a big deal, right? We know that the blood of Jesus washes away sin. Nothing else can do that. The enemy is defeated by the blood of the Lamb. So we read that and we go, yeah, I believe that makes sense. And then he goes, and the word of your testimony, that you are supposed to know that Jesus is actually real, not because you heard about it, but because you have encountered him. Because you know him. What was Thomas insisting upon? He was insisting that he know for himself through personal experience with the risen Jesus that Jesus is who he says he is before he goes and lays down his life for a gospel that he's not even sure is true. And by the way, he did lay down his life. 
And I say we better follow Thomas's example because nobody ever gets into heaven on somebody else's faith. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us this. It says that we should always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. And if you'll allow me just a second, I'm going to go off on a, on a soapbox here and stand up and say this. As the body of Christ in the 21st century, we need to grow in this. It says we should be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. In other words, we should have some reason to say that we believe what we believe, that we're not just chasing some pipe dream, that we're not just, I was raised in church and it makes me feel good to be there and why not believe in Jesus? I got to choose some religion, I choose that one. He says, no, be ready to give a defense because there are people out there and it's becoming more and more prominent. And if you're on social media or you watch the news or you're reading anything, you're seeing this all the time, that more and more we are raising a generation of skeptics who are taught not to believe in anything spiritual, not to believe in anything supernatural, but the only things that are real are the things that can be measured with the five senses. And so these questions are coming up more and more. Why would you believe in such a fairy tale? Why would you believe in something that cannot be proven? And we as the body of Christ need to be much better than we are at being able to say, listen, I have done the research. I do believe that science argues for a creator and not against a creator, and here's why. I do believe that history argues for a historical Jesus who matches the Jesus in the Bible, and here's why. I do believe that the Bible is a book that is worthy of our absolute respect and awe, and here's why. And we need to be able to give a defense for the hope that is within us. We've got to get better at that. That being said... When we read 1 Peter 3.15 and it says that we should be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, why do we always assume that's intellectual? Why do we always assume that that means we have to give good arguments, we have to speak philosophically, we have to use good reason, and all of those kinds of things, and that's all it means, that we better be able to win a debate about this. There are many, many, many things that we know are true that we base our lives on that we don't see every day, Right? that we cannot measure in any kind of a tangible way. So why is it that when we think about giving a defense for our faith, we think it's only about reasonable arguments? I say it has to be about changed lives. I say it has to be about changed lives. Why do we assume that this ready defense is always about the mind and not just about our lives? Some of the most brilliant people I know came to know Jesus not just because they studied the evidence, which on its own is overwhelming, but because they actually saw lives changed. And, and I hope you'll forgive me for this. I don't mean to embarrass you, but Roger Ingebretson, one of our elders, is one of the most intelligent people I have ever met. He's been to all the best schools. He has all of the scientific degrees. He could talk about stuff that I don't even know how to spell, and he gets it. And he is brilliant, and he walks with Jesus as a man of God. Why does he walk with Jesus? Why did he come to Jesus? Is it because he studied and studied and studied and he found out that the evidence is so overwhelming that he couldn't refute it anymore? No, that's not how he came to Jesus. I'll tell you how he came to Jesus. His wife came to Jesus and he saw her life change. When he watched Jesus working in her life and he saw the things that Jesus was doing in her life, it became so evident and so obvious that Jesus is real that he could no longer resist and he gave his life to Christ too. See, that is the personal testimony that the Scripture is talking about. We have to know because we know personally. 
It's not enough just to have the arguments. You need the arguments, but you need to have a story to tell. And so I just want to ask you, do you have a story to tell about your experience with the risen Christ? I know you haven't seen him, but have you experienced him? Are you experiencing him now? Do you have stories to tell about answered prayers where only God could have responded and done what he did? Have there been times when you were fully aware of your utter dependence upon him and he came through? Do you have that story to tell? Have you ever seen him do things that only God could do? Does he connect with you on a personal level so that you don't just know about him, but you know him? If so, you have a testimony to share. And it's a testimony that is exactly the same as those disciples. You go, no, 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 pastor, it's not. They saw the wounds, remember? They saw the wounds. I've never seen the wounds. There are so many things that you believe in that you've never seen. Like gravity, for instance. Have you ever seen gravity? No, but you've seen the results of it, right? So you believe in gravity. Have you ever gone to bed at night and then strapped yourself in just in case gravity gives up during the night? <laughs> of course not. But, but, but you don't see gravity. You don't see the wind. You see results of the wind. There are things you believe. You believe in the future and in the past. You, you believe that, that the signers of the Declaration of Independence actually existed and that they, uh, there was actually that part of American history. You believe when you go to bed tonight that you're very, very, very likely to wake up tomorrow. And so you live your life knowing that tomorrow is likely to come, and so you plan for it. There's all kinds of things. Do you, do you, have you ever experienced love? Can you see it? No, but it's real, and you know it when you experience it. I think that's why Jesus said, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Have you believed just because you saw a big deal, he says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You and I are called blessed by Jesus if we actually believe. Because we get to experience him in our daily lives. Because we're blessed because we have seen a risen Savior without our eyes, but in every other way. We're blessed because... Um, we walk with one, we know one who is not only relevant 2,000 years ago when he was physically walking on the earth, but is just as relevant today as he lives within us. Not in a theoretical sense. Don't, don't let me mislead you. Don't be confused. I'm not talking about a philosophy or a theory. I'm talking about actuality, that Jesus is actually alive. Do you believe that? Are you experiencing that? Because what this world desperately needs is a good dose of Christians who actually know Him, not just know about Him. Christians who are being influenced by the power of the risen Savior moment by moment every day. Christians who actually live out what they believe because they know that Jesus is alive and that we will stand before Him one day. Not people who claim to be Christians and spout out a bunch of rhetoric and all of that kind of stuff, but don't actually live as though Jesus is alive. Thomas took the gospel down to Persia 
and all the way down to India, spread the gospel to people who had never even heard of the Jewish God, let alone hearing of Jesus. And, and everyone in India who is a follower of Jesus can trace their spiritual lineage down to Thomas, who was, went to India with the gospel, and rather than renouncing his testimony and saying that Jesus wasn't risen, he was run through with a lance and, and put on display in the public square. And there are millions, if not hundreds of millions of people who have come to know Jesus because Thomas was so convinced that Jesus really is alive that he laid down everything to share that testimony. Doubting Thomas? You call him that if you want, but I think we should call him authentic Thomas. The man who refused to preach what he did not know to be true. But once he knew it to be true, he refused to shut up. That is a man of God. See, he was authentic in his faith. And there's just too many people who have run into too many so-called Christians who have no authenticity in their faith whatsoever. They live as though the gospel that they preach is not true. And the world is dying to see some of us who are actually putting our money where our mouth is and living as though what we say we believe is actually true, that Jesus really is alive. Guys, it is okay if you have intellectual questions and doubts related to your faith. You have questions to ask Jesus about the claims of Scripture? Go ahead and ask them. There's no reason to be afraid of the truth. Are you unsure about the credibility of the Bible and the claims of Scripture? Go ahead and do the research. Listen, if you don't read some of the things in Scripture and scratch your head and go, is that really true? Then you're stupid. I mean, do you really, you really believe that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and Noah had all these, all these uh, animals on the ark and all that kind of stuff. Well, it must be true because they made a movie about it and there were those rock people that helped build the thing, right? <laughs> See, you look at that kind of stuff. Did Jonah, did Jonah really live in a big fish for a couple of days? I mean, seriously? Is, that, is there any credibility behind a book that says, no, it didn't happen the way uh, the scientists say it happened. God just spoke and the universe came into existence and he made man in his own image. Is that true? I guarantee you it's true. But it's not because I just heard it and decided to believe it. It's because the evidence is so overwhelmingly in the favor of a creator that it takes more faith to believe that the world just came to be than it does to believe that creator God created it just as the Bible says. So don't, don't worry if you got doubts and you have confusion and you have questions. Ask your questions. Follow the questions. You will find the truth. I'm not the least bit concerned about that because here's the deal. If it's not true, don't you want to know? If Jesus is not risen, if Jesus is not real, if he's not alive today, then what Paul says is true, that we are of all men most to be pitied. If he's not risen, I want to know, because guys, if you haven't noticed this, I put all my eggs in this basket. Like I believe with all of my heart and I have lined up my entire life behind the belief that Jesus is really who he says he is and he's really alive today. And it's not just because the intellectual evidence, there's that, but it's because I know him. I've seen him do things. I know who he is by relationship, not just by ideas. So 
If you believe that, that if the claims of Jesus are true, that the grave cannot hold him, that death could not keep him, that he is actually alive today, and if the church as a whole believes that, then how in the world are we going to explain the lackadaisical approach to our Christianity that we see happening all around us? We as the body of Christ have got to wake up. Either he is who he says he is and he's worthy of our whole lives, or he's not and he's worthy of nothing of our lives. As C.S. Lewis was so astute to to point out, there is no option for Jesus as a good teacher and a good man because he claimed to be God and he claimed to be the only way and therefore said that all other ways to get to God are false ways. And if he is not the only way and if he is not the risen king and if he is not alive today, then he is not a good man who is a good teacher. He is by all accounts the most evil person who ever lived. We have to make our decision. Either he is who he says he is or he's not. And if you're not sure, God bless you. Find out. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. But once Jesus shows you who he is, and once you know him experientially, things have got to change because I understand skeptics. I understand people who question the claims of the Bible. But you know what I don't understand? What I will never understand? I will never understand Christians who accept the claims of Scripture, who believe the Bible is true, who come to church on Easter Sunday and shout, He is risen, and then walk out of the doors and live as though He's dead. I'll never understand that. Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your honest questions. Thomas had questions, Jesus gave him answers. So if you have questions, ask them. Get to the truth. But if you are convinced, this is a big if, if you are convinced that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, lived, died, rose again, and is alive today, if you are convinced that he is the risen King, then with all due respect, may I say this, Get off your butt and go out there and live for him. Because it's not okay for us to spew something out about what we believe and then live as though it's not true. It's worse than if we never said anything because our lives are unpreaching the very gospel that our mouths are preaching. And so I come to you on the week after Easter and I say there is a challenge Will you live as if he was risen every day, not just Easter?